0: So things are kind of in a bad place and they're kind of stuck. (laughs) I mean, the last time we had a a, a political alignment that looked like this was 1850s, 1860, and we wound up in a a civil war, and so we killed off a lot of our own population.
1: And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Twelve years after the printing press was invented, the technology had not yet left the city of Mainz. Only a handful of people had ever held a printed book in their hands. Twelve years into the invention of Facebook, it has spread around the whole world. The platform now has two billion active users. What will the effect of this rapid transformation be? Can it help to explain the rise of populism? It's difficult to remember now but five years ago, digital technology, and especially social media, we're supposed to bring democracy to far-flung countries and to deepen democratic institutions here at home. Breathless articles were celebrating the Twitter revolution in Egypt and Syria. Dictators were said to tremble in the face of Facebook. In the United States, authors like Clay Shirky celebrated Twitter and Facebook for giving ordinary people the power to organize without organizations. Today, the picture looks very different. A military junta is back in power in Egypt. Syria lies in tatters. And back home, Social media is being blamed for echo chambers and the rise of fake news. So is social media actually bad for democracy? No. Instead, the spread of social media weakens the power of insiders and strengthens the power of outsiders. It reduces the technological advantage the government holds over ordinary citizens or the opposition. In dictatorships, this makes it easier for pro-democracy activists to start a revolt. But in democracies, it makes it easier for populist and anti-democratic forces to challenge the political establishment. Social media is neither straightforwardly good nor bad, neither straightforwardly pro nor anti-democratic. Rather, it favors change over stability and thus constitutes a big new threat to all kinds of political systems that have long seemed immutable. I'm thrilled that Lee Drutman is joining me in the studio today. Lee is a colleague of mine here at New America. He's a senior fellow in the political reform program, a former congressional staffer. He's the author of The Business of America is Lobbying, which has won all kinds of fancy prices from the American Political Science Association. Lee has informed my views in just about every aspect of American politics since we started talking a few years ago, and he's changed my mind about a lot of things as well. But perhaps the central idea he's uh, working out at the moment is that the basic cleavage in American politics is shifting. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, he argues, used to depend mainly on your economic views. Now it depends on your attitude to things like race and ethnicity and social attitudes. And that, he thinks, is really dangerous. Lee, what what do you mean by this shift of the main cleavage in American politics? What does that mean? Thanks for the generous introduction. I'm a huge fan of the podcast
0: so far. And... uh... I'm really excited to, to be here. So what I mean is that we we have a two-party system here in the United States, and two-party competition means that the parties have to be structured around a primary set of questions. And that, that primary set of questions used to be questions over size. So, so hold and...
1: a second. Why is it that in a two-party system there has to be a primary set of questions? I know there's, you know... Or it Duverger's Law and so on? What, what is that? Well, uh, Duverger's
0: Law, right, in a winner-take-all plurality system, like the one that we have in the US, sort of, we inevitably have two parties, and then the parties have to figure out a way to distinguish themselves from each other. And, a and, way and there's to... two
1: parties, right, because there's a wasted vote problem. Yeah. That people might be like, look, I want to vote for Green Party, I want to vote for Libertarian Party. But they realize that, you know, that vote is likely to get wasted because unless you vote for the person who has the plurality of the vote in your right. district, you've lost. Right. Whereas in, say, a proportional representation system like you have them in Europe, you know, your party only has to pass some minimal threshold, right. 5% in some countries, 2% in some countries. And then your vote gets counted and they get a little bit more seats in parliament if they've made that incremental increase in the national vote. So there you end up with many more parties. Right because as long as you think your party is going to get enough votes to at least get a few seats in parliament, you're not worried about your vote not counting. Whereas here, you're like, well, look, unless I vote for a Democrat or Republican, the likelihood of my vote counting is really, really low.
0: Right. And we saw that in the presidential election. A lot of people were not thrilled about either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. But what were they going to do? Vote for Evan McMullin or or Jill Stein? I mean, some people did, but most people said, well, I'll just suck it up because I want Hillary Clinton to win more than I want Donald Trump to win, even though I don't love Hillary Clinton. A lot of people who voted for Donald Trump were not voting for Donald Trump. They were voting because they couldn't stomach the idea of Hillary Clinton being president.
1: Great. And so that's why the political system sort of is structured in such a way that one political cleavage is always likely to be defining. Right. So that the parties essentially try to
0: distinguish themselves and and say the one issue is the most important issue. And then people vote based on that issue. So what Donald Trump essentially did is he built on a shift that had been happening for a long time, but he started his campaign making it really about American identity. And he went after immigrants right from the get-go. He went after Muslims. And what he did was for a set of voters who had voted – there's some number of of Obama Trump voters. Now, they had sort of been trending more more towards Republicans as – they're basically – Economically liberal, traditional labor left position—you know, support the welfare state, tax the rich—skeptical towards trade, but they're also socially conservative and somewhat uh, racially conservative, anti-immigration. Now, there was a period of time when the parties were kind of split on this, particularly immigration, and more and more the Republican Party has become the the anti-immigration party, the and that has kind of shifted the the priorities among these voters. I, I might argue. And so whereas a lot of these voters, you know, sort of populist voters might have voted for the Democrat in the past because they say, well, Democrats are the party of the working class. Now they say, well, Democrats are the party of multiculturalism and they're the party that's taking my money and giving it to black and brown people. And Donald Trump really made that dimension particularly salient.
1: So I guess there's two different ways of thinking about this, right? Like one is that the most important social divisions used to be different ones. Yeah, and the others, no, those divisions were always the same, they just weren't politically salient. right? right. And perhaps it's a little bit of both that's going on. But, right. but your point is that 30 years ago, you know, there were some people who were like, look, I want for welfare state. I want to make sure that I have good Medicare. And so I'm going to vote for the Democrats. Right. Do I like the fact that Democrats are more racially tolerant or that they want more civil rights legislation? No, I don't. But you know what? The main thing that people talk about on TV the main people thing that I care about is the economic side. So even though uh, my views are closer to the Republicans on certain of those other things, I'm, I'm going to go over Democrats. Right. And the profile of the parties was less clear, because it's not just voters who sort themselves, it's legislators as well. Right. right, right. Yeah. And so you had a range
0: of of Democratic politicians, some of whom were more racially conservative, some of whom were more racially liberal. So in, in in places like Kentucky or many of the Rust Belt states, you had lawmakers and political leaders who could say, this is what the Democratic Party looks like, and we care about people like you. And as the center of gravity of the Democratic Party has moved more to the coasts and the cities, now Democrats in the House, actually a minority of Democrats in the House are, are white males. So so the face of the party, Barack Obama becoming president, changes and people's view of what the Democratic Party stands for changes as well. I mean, th- this happened in the South much earlier and that once the Democratic Party became the black party in the South, a lot of former white Democrats became Republicans for precisely that reason, and this for uh, sort of racial identity and group identity is a primary identity for a lot of people. And when those identities are primed, people try to figure out, well, what is the party for people like me? And so, in the last decade, or we've had a black president for eight years prior to just a little bit ago, and that primed racial identity for some people. We had a pretty sharp increase in immigration particularly in a lot of places that were formerly just almost entirely homogenous. And that's raised the salience of immigration. And now we've had politicians who are talking about these issues. Ten years ago, immigration was was sort of on the agenda, but it wasn't nearly as top of
1: agenda as it is now. So when you go back 20 or 30 years ago, you're saying, look, some people were Democrats because they cared more for working class benefits yeah. than for making it easier for business to do its job or repealing regulations, right? And that's what made them Democrats. And actually on a bunch of social issues, they are centrist, perhaps they were even conservative, yeah. but they sort of pushed that underground because the thing with structural politics was the economic bit. And yeah. now it's starting to be the other way around, where actually it's not really clear in certain ways where Democrats stand. There's a bunch of Democrats who are really... You know, fighting for a higher minimum wage. There's a bunch of Democrats who are actually very close to Wall Street, but the thing that makes them Democrats is their social attitudes, their attitudes about race, their attitudes about identity. And when you think about the most stark difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the campaign, it was really about how do you talk about immigration, how yeah. do you talk about who is an American?
0: Yeah, and that is really what does it mean to be an American and who is America for? One of the interesting things about this this particular cleavage is that it is really a a geographical cleavage. In the cities and urban areas where highly educated whites and and diverse people congregate, people tend to have much more racially, socially liberal views, tend to be much more global-minded in their thinking. In the more rural and ex-urban areas, people tend to be more traditionalist. They don't have the same post-materialist values they don't put the same priority on being a, a part of the global community, and they tend to be much, much wider and much less racially tolerant. And as the parties have really become geographic parties, as Democrats have become the party of the coasts and the cities, and Republicans have become the party of the quote unquote heartland, you now have this really, I think, dangerous overlapping of culture identity and geography on top of the two-party system. And so
1: take me through why that's dangerous, right? Because I think a lot of Democrats or a lot of liberals listening to this might say, well, look, um, this is great. We've assembled a winning coalition this past election. We didn't win for all kinds of reasons. You know, Hillary Clinton's baggage, perhaps he wasn't left enough, perhaps Russia, perhaps whatever. But look, you know, the America that's growing is minorities, the mark of it's growing is racially tolerant because young people tend to be more racially tolerant than older people so this is going to be the main dividing line of our politics great we'll we'll keep winning over the next 20 30 years why should we be worried about that so so why do you think that this shift from the economic cleavage and the racial cleavage is sort of dangerous and and I'm asking slightly insincerely because we've had this conversation many times and yeah. I've been pushing you a little bit in the direction of saying that it's dangerous well It is dangerous, and it may be that it's not
0: for certain that it is a winning demographic strategy for Democrats. But that aside, or at least immediately, even if it is a winning strategy for Democrats, it's dangerous, I think, for two reasons that are related. One is that it kind of creates the set of zero sum issues, right? So if the primary dividing line in politics is economics and it's about tax policy or the size of government programs, you can make bargains over that. There's a middle ground you know that you can you can compromise over and and it in doesn't... Some cases quite
1: literally, right? Yes. like you want taxes to be five percent lower. I want them to stay the same. Will compromise in two point five percent lower, right? Literally split the difference, right? You can
0: split the difference, and people don't get as passionate. I mean, certainly people do get a little passionate, but not quite in the way that that when people's sense of of who we are, what is our identity, what are our values, there's no there's no compromise over you know is America. We have two very different stories about what America is. America is a nation of immigrants, and we should we should support refugees from around the world, or America is a nation for traditionalist white Christian Americans, and that is the story of America. Right, like— And there's no middle
1: ground there. It's not sort of like Donald Trump wants to ban people from six countries. Let's ban people from three countries, and we can sort of all live with that, right? But the other thing, and perhaps that's what you were getting at, is that it's not just that the passion is less. I mean, you know, I know some people who are really passionate about tax policy. Not many of them, but some. But it's sort of what it does to your view of the other person. Right when you disagree with them, right? I can disagree with you very strongly about tax policy. And perhaps for some people, if we disagree about tax policy, I don't want to go get a beer with you. I don't want to be your friend, but I still think of you as a fellow American. I don't think of you as not part of the people because you have the wrong views on corporation tax. Whereas once sort of politics becomes about this ethnic dividing line, there is a real danger of saying, look, I stand for real people, and the real people are for this border wall. And if you're not, then you're a traitor. Right. I stand for real people, and real people are not Mexicans, and Muslims, because they're rapists and terrorists. So right. if you're Mexican Muslim, you're not a real American. Right. We used to have a,
0: a kind of shared understanding of what our fundamental American values in this country. I think, and now we have a real divide. And you know, these are the what's happened is that I think partisans at both extremes now view the other party's voters as enemies. I mean, there you know, on the left, people say there's no such thing as a good Trump voter. You know, on the right, on the Trump right, people say you know these Clinton voters, they hate America, they want to bring in terrorists, and they want to they want to turn us into a third world country by bringing in Mexicans, right? I mean, you like read what Ann Coulter writes, and liberals are the enemy. They are they are the enemy of the people, and that And, cre- and Donald Trump literally and, talks, yes, talks about the yes, press as the enemy yes. of the American people. Right. right, press is the enemy of the American people, and. It's hard to compromise when you're in this existential struggle and the other side is the enemy, right? You can't make a compromise with the enemy. And that's what happens when countries go to war with each other. They demonize other nationalities as, as less than human. And that is what
1: totalitarian regimes do to any internal critics, Yeah, right? I mean, that is, I think, the really dangerous logic of populism. But yeah. a populist says, not only do I speak for the American people or the you know, German or Polish or whatever people, I alone speak for the people. right. That there is a real American. I mean, even
0: that phrase, the authentic real Americans, right? That's a phrase that politicians have used for a while. And when they mean a real American, they don't mean a Muslim immigrant who lives in Washington, D.C. They mean a white Christian who who
1: And Sarah Palin famously in 2008 talked about the real parts of America, right? So there is a very strong strain of that. So look, I am tempted to take a very easy conclusion from this, and I know that you think it's a little more complicated, so I want to discuss that. So it seems to me, I'm, I'm persuaded by this case, right? I'm persuaded the dividing line is now primarily around identity. I think perhaps it shows us that it's always been more about identity than we've admitted. Perhaps. But it was sort of subterranean, it was a little hidden, and now it's out in the ugly open. So to me, precisely because it's so dangerous, precisely because it renders America into two parts, because it makes people think of each other not as political adversaries, but as enemies, our goal has to be to overcome that. Our goal has to be to rest the main dividing line of politics back onto economic terrain, onto some other terrain that is not as divisive, that is not as frankly dangerous. But how do you do that? And how do you do that without abandoning some of the issues that you care about. When you have a president of the White House who calls Mexicans rapists and calls Muslims terrorists, you have to double down on your advocacy for those groups because you can't let them come to harm. But at the same time, if you do that, then you are actually entrenching this dividing line in American politics, which in the long run is really dangerous. So I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to do with that.
0: Yeah, well, it seems very challenging. You might say, well, we should have politics that's organized around economic issues, but there are there are challenges to doing that. I mean, one is that even economic issues, people see through the lens of race and identity. And so even though Democrats might have been doing policies that we might think were, were actually good for the, the white working class in the Rust Belt, people there don't see it that way.
1: Right, so people uh, with a more racially charged view of the world tend to disapprove of Obamacare in right. greater numbers because they think that Obamacare is a handout to black people, essentially. Right, right. Poor, poor black and brown people. So...
0: I think a lot of it has to to do with the way in which we have this winner take all high stakes conflict in which you know the parties for a long time have sought to demonize each other and the you know, way Republicans have demonized Democrats is by increasingly by saying casting democrats as the you know the party of not real americans so as long as we have this two-party conflict with a with a very powerful strong presidency that is highly consequential we're going to have a very contentious divide right i mean it's really hard to you know unless some drastic event happens that you know somehow radically realigns the parties we're not going to get to a new a new dividing line naturally. So then you think, well, so so you, wh- so you, what think, are the... so you
1: think for now we're stuck with with with, uh, with the ethnic dividing Well, line. unless we, we have some, from
0: unless we have a new generation of incredibly enlightened Republican politicians who want to sort of take some some remarkable leadership that is at odds with the ways in which their base have been riled up to be anti-immigrant and feel like their whole
1: sense of what it means to
0: be an American is threatened.
1: I mean, is there uh, some way in which the Donald Trump presidency might crash and burn that that would lead to that? Is there some uh, way in which sort of mm-hmm. he might so come to personify the ways in which Republicans, frankly, for a while, have more subtly played into racial dividing lines, but a way in which Donald Trump so comes to own that and fails so spectacularly that the post-Trump Republican Party would have to completely run from that.
0: And that may be the case, but that still leaves probably a quarter to a third of, well, I don't know, maybe a quarter, 20% of the population who is going to hold those very extreme views. Because what we know is that most voters listen to what their political leaders say, and then they internalize those those beliefs. And for a long time, I mean, th- there was a tension in the Republican Party that there was sort of a sense of uh, there, there were dog whistles, but it was not acceptable to say certain things. And now Donald Trump has made it acceptable to say certain things. And Republicans- It's gone had, from being a dog whistle to an old man whistle. To, yes, yes, exactly. So I think it's hard to see that happening, which is what makes me really nervous. You know, th- the solutions that I- sort of come to our kind of more radical in that we need to move to some kind of multi-party system to create a kind of second dimension of conflict that would allow for compromise. And, and when you say come
1: to a multi-party system, you mean reform the electoral system? Reform the electoral cetera,
0: system. Whatever. So things like multi-member districts, ranked choice voting, which got passed in Maine as a step in that direction. That's a pretty radical change. And neither of the two parties have a strong incentive to do that because that would create a whole new system in which they would probably lose under. So I'm stuck. I mean maybe we move towards more federalism which drains some of the contentiousness out of national politics, but that creates a lot of problems around civil rights and issues and minority rights issues. So so things are things are kind of in a bad place and they're kind of stuck. <laughs> I mean the last time we had a political alignment that looked like this was 1850s 1860 and we wound up in a in a civil war and so we killed off a lot of our own population and then we eventually at some point later kind of healed but that's not an ideal solution
1: wow i've been joking a little bit in the last months that i used to be the most pessimistic person in the room and now no longer am but i'm sort of speechless by that Do you think that if the main dividing line of American politics remains what it is now for the next 30 years, something like civil war is a real prospect?
0: Well, I think civil war is is less likely because the divide in 1860, it was clearly north versus south, whereas now it's more urban versus rural. There's no clear geographic line on which that would be fought. But I think kind of a, a low level violence for a period of time is a real threat. And a sort of delegitimization of national political institutions.
1: Look, I agree with that. This might be mistakes. The then then let's think hard about whether or not we can move that line, right? I mean, so one way of moving the line is to diffuse identity as a dividing line. Yeah. And we can talk about whether that's possible or not. And then the other thing is to ratchet up the economy as a dividing line, right? I mean the salience, if there's basically competition between two different possible dividing lines in American politics, you can think of it as a competition between the two. And what's happened over the last 30 years in all kinds of ways is both that the racial dividing line has become bigger, and we can think about why that's been the case, but I think certainly in terms of, you know, when you look back at George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton debating immigration in, in presidential debates, they have views you know, that are quite similar to each other, right? right? And the economic views are, are more apart, and the economic views 80 years earlier would have been even further apart between Democrats and Republicans, right? So the salience of racial views has increased, and the salience of economic views has decreased as Democrats have become more centrist in many ways and right. so on. So is the answer to try and diffuse the salience of racial issues, however that is possible, is the opposite of what Democrats are doing, understandably at the moment, is part of the answer also to try and really stake a new set of economic demands in a way that that becomes exciting to talk about, that becomes exciting to think about. And and people become passionate about those kinds of issues in a way that makes them sort themselves differently.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's certainly one way to do it. Now, there are two challenges there. One is that it requires an incredible amount of creativity and persistence for political leaders to be able to do that. And I don't see any leaders who are remotely close to that. Two is that, and this kind of touches on the campaign finance system, is that one of the, I think one of the reasons why both parties have become more identity focused is that they've had a challenge in kind of that there's a set of party donors and lobbyists who want policy that is more economically Mm. and conservative and and pro-business and pro-corporate and anti-worker and anti-entitlement than the voters in both parties would prefer. So both parties, in a sense, hold their coalitions together around identity because they know that if economics were the most salient issue, that their coalitions would be much more vociferous, would be much more likely to fall apart. that brings
1: us a little bit into the territory of your book, which is about lobbying and and more broadly the role of money in politics as well. So one way that I take it is that, look, the parties have an incentive in not making politics about money, because if it were, then, um, but actually Democrats uh, especially, would have a problem raising donations from Wall Street and so on. right they don't want all the political debate to be about economics because otherwise they can't raise the money they, right. they, they have to, to run. And there's also a related problem, which is a little different, I think, around the way that primaries encourage ideological orthodoxy. Because the kinds of people who come out to vote in primaries are obviously many fewer than in the general election. And so they have a greater motivation for participating, which often means they have more radical political views. And so the average Republican vote in a primary is far more conservative than the average Republican vote in a general election, unless you're on the Democratic side as well. The average Democratic vote is more liberal in the primary than in the general election. And so that pulls the parties further apart as well. So, is there some way of thinking about the role of money in politics, the role of lobbying, the role perhaps of how we structure our primary system that can counteract that tendency?
0: I tend to not put as much blame on the primaries as a lot of other people do, but. Uh, Why not?
1: Uh, well, because I
0: I haven't seen that many incumbents being successfully primaried, even though people, it's, it's sort of this perpetual threat. And the, more, but, 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 and, and the, other, right. the, the other, the, the the, other, the, the other the point- The existence of the
1: perpetual threat might be really important, right? It might because... be,
0: but the second point is that parties themselves also get taken over by passionate activists. So if the if you have part local parties or state parties that are I mean look at, look at like look at some of the, the state Republican parties, look at like the Texas state Republican party. They they're insane. I mean they're even more extreme than than the voters in Texas. So that by kicking it to the state and local parties, uh, many of those party leaders particularly on the right are 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 even probably more extreme than the voters.
1: So in places where the parties end up becoming more moderate or staying moderate is often because the parliamentary party has a lot of power. So that used to be the case with political parties in Britain, for example. And when that was changed, they moved to the extremes. But that's not a realistic prospect, right? There's no way to give the congressional Republican delegation Effective control. Well, perhaps it could be. I, I mean, mean, they, they could. Imagine... They could. I
0: mean, what well, and some people might argue. I mean, there's two arguments, right? One argument that 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 are kind of at cross purposes, right? So one set of people say, well, what we should do is sort of loosen the rules around money so that that would give the national party leaders more power because they have they control the money and then they could move all that money around. They should be able to raise large sums of money. The problem is is small donors and small activists within the party. Now, there's another group of people say, well, okay, that may be all well and fine. But what that does is makes the parties rely even more on a very limited number of wealthy and, and corporate donors who are misaligned with the voters. So then in order to ally, and this is how what I would argue is that this is actually kind of what's happened, is that in order to align the differences between where voters stand and where donors stand on economic policy issues, both parties have focused more on identity to distract from that division and say, well, you know, so so Republicans might say to working class white voters, you know, OK, don't pay attention to the fact that we're getting all this money from super wealthy people because the Democrats are going to take all your we, money. Right, and give we're it. against the border walls. So a, right. a, and the Democrats want to tax you so that they can give all your money to black and brown poor people. And Democrats might say, well, you know, don't worry that we're taking all this money from rich people in Hollywood and Wall Street because the Republicans are a bunch of racists who want to deny your right to exist in this country or vote in this country. And you know, those arguments are powerful emotional arguments that sort of, well, you know, okay, well, the party might not be where I want economically, but, you know, m- my racial identity comes first.
1: So since you mentioned the president, just, just as a last question, I want to get your sense of how worried you are a couple months into the presidency. I know that you and uh, Mark Schmidt, the director of the reform program, have written about the signs of when you have to be worried. You know, my personal sense at the moment, uh, at least when we're recording this, is that I'm worried 10 out of 10 on rhetoric. I think that the things that Donald Trump have, has said over the last months have just been shocking and no-holds-bars, alarm bells ringing. But at the same time, he hasn't done that many very worrying things. So he's passed an executive order which was concerning, but which was quickly cut down by the courts, and to some degree, to my surprise, he deferred to the courts on that. And then he you know, has started to step up deportation proceedings, but on the whole, he hasn't done that many bad things. So how do we reconcile the very worrying rhetoric and to some degree, the lack of extremely worrying action so far? I said that with many Qualifies because it's early and we don't know exactly what's going on yet. But
0: yeah, I share that assessment that the rhetoric is really dangerous. the The implementation has been stumbling, and you know it's clear that there are not a lot of competent people who are working in the administration. So in some ways, that may that may limit what the administration can do. But over time, they may. Figure that out and get more competent people. I mean, what Donald Trump has done, I think, so far with his rhetoric is he's moved the, the Republican Party more and more in the direction of being an ethno-nationalist party, and you see how quickly Republicans have mm. have come to embrace him. How quickly he's he's taken over the sort of rhetorical apparatus of the party and the enemies that he's picked. He's demonized the press and undermined the the sort of sense of any authoritative set of facts in American discourse. And he's also provoked the left to some, you know, kind of extreme positions on on immigration in some cases. And he appears to be making immigration the central political conflict. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, for for reasons that we've discussed, that that is a really worrying thing. So there are, you know, that's, there yeah. there are ways of thinking, there there are his actions and there are then the second order effects of his actions and if he kind of fails to do these things, then he has a set of enemies lined up. If he loses the next election it's because illegal immigrants voted. If the economy goes downhill, it's because the courts prevented him from deporting enough immigrants.
1: I think that's a really great insight. So it's sort of adding a third point. So I started out with the rhetoric has been really worrying action hasn't been that worrying yet though deeply concerning in certain ways and ruining people's lives, but not concerning at a systemic stability level. But I think the third point, the more long-term point what you're adding to this is important, which is, well, look, another thing that's happened is that he's managed to get a lot of congressional Republicans on his side and really cement this new dividing line in American politics. And you can already see in the approval that he has within Congress and so on that happening, the triumphant welcome to CPAC and other things I I think I agree with that Lee it's been a pleasure talking as always thank you so much everybody for listening to this episode of The Good Fight lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show if you too have been enjoying it please be like them rate the show on iTunes tell your friends all about it share out on Facebook or Twitter stand by the water cooler all day and talk to your colleagues about The Good Fight until they call HR and finally please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to for good fight at newamerica.org.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.